I've had the distinct privilege this week of thinking about Exodus chapter 3, which is where we're going to be tonight. And um, sometimes I think this is the case for every passage that I preach on, but I kind of think that Exodus 3 is probably my favorite passage in the Bible to think about and to teach on and to preach on. Um, In Exodus 3, God reveals to Moses and he reveals to us some of the most groundbreaking and mind-bending and earth-shattering things about himself. And it's my, uh, my belief, my conviction, my burden that we all crash against the reality of this God tonight. As I was studying, I came across this quote by, the man, uh, by a man by the name of Charles Misner. He was a physicist, or is a physicist. And um, he was commenting on uh, Albert Einstein's religious perspectives, and he said this. He said, I do see the design of the universe as essentially a religious question. That is, one should have some kind of respect and awe for the whole business of the universe. It's very magnificent and shouldn't be taken for granted. In fact, I believe that is why Einstein had so little use for organized religion. Although he strikes me as a basically religious man, he must have looked at what the preachers, listen to this, he must have looked at what the preachers said about God and felt that they were blaspheming. He had seen much more majesty than they had ever imagined, and they were just not talking about the real thing. I want that little criticism to sit on us. Albert Einstein, right or wrong, you know, he looks at the universe and he observes grandeur, majesty, incomprehensibility. And then he looks at the church, and whether it's preachers from a pulpit or whether it's us in our seats tonight, he didn't see the same thing. He'd seen something different in the universe. That failure is on our parts. It's not on the Bible's part. The Bible's picture of God, if I were to use the word huge, the word huge is not a category for God. What I want us to see tonight is a picture of God that busts through categories. I do not want you walking out of this room tonight understanding God. That is not the goal tonight. The goal tonight is for you to come up against a God who is so richly holy that the only response that you can possibly have is to place your hand over your mouth and to sit in silence and bewilderment. That's my goal tonight. I want you to see him in the scriptures. I want you to see him like he, set, like he showed himself to Moses. In the 1940s, there was a theologian by the name of Karl Barth who made this quote that has stuck with me for years and years. He said that the God, little g, the, the God that has been comprehended is always an idol. 
The God that has been comprehended is always an idol. And what he meant by that is that if you have a concept for God that is fit, it's structured, it's categorized, it's, uh, it fits into some little scheme that you have and you're comfortable with it, then you should be uncomfortable because you have a false God. You have a God that you've created in your own image. Because the God of the Bible, while we can have little concepts that help us understand parts of him, he is much too large for that. And so we have to have a concept of God that backs away and says, you, the thoughts of you are too high, I cannot attain to them, like David says in the Psalms. As I studied this passage this week, I came across something that had struck me particularly new this time. I began to contemplate the life of Moses. And I think that what God does for Moses is the same thing God is going to do for us tonight. Because in a lot of ways, we're in the same situation. So I want to walk through some of the life of Moses up until this point, and then take that as a launching pad to talk about three things as it relates to the holiness of God. We're going to talk about the otherness of God. I know it's a weird concept. We'll talk about it. The untouchableness of God. And then I want to move from those two things and talk about a paradox. The otherness of God, the untouchableness of God, and then the nearness of God. It's what's here in Exodus chapter 3. In Moses' life, Moses was born in Egypt. The Israelites were living there at the time. And at that time, Pharaoh had determined a decree. He feared the Hebrew people were growing too large and he wanted to crush them. So he issued a decree that all male children that were to be born were to be thrown into the River Nile. And so this begins to happen. But the mother of, of Moses uh, creates a basket and sets Moses in it and puts him on the Nile so that there might be some chance that Moses could survive. And providentially, by God's hand, or God guided Moses' basket into the hands of Pharaoh's daughter, who then raises Moses in the house of Pharaoh. And then the uh, biblical story, this is Exodus chapter 1, cuts off. And we know nothing of Moses' life for the next 40 years until at the end of that 40-year period of time, he kills an Egyptian man and has to flee for his life. But we can make some assumptions about Moses' life in the course of this 40-year period of time. Moses was raised from infancy in the Egyptian palace. What would his education have been like? What would be the things that he would have understood? What would have been his worldview? Understand me, Moses would have been a thorough pagan. He would have adopted the Egyptian religion wholesale. He would have worshipped Amon-Ra. He would have worshipped Horus and Isis and uh, all of these Egyptian gods. He would have believed their mythologies. And then at the end of this 40-year period of time, he, uh, by the way, just to, the, the Israelites themselves were worshipping these things, let alone an, a, a Hebrew man who never had an identity with his people. He, bought, he was brought up in the royal palace with the Egyptian, with the Egyptian people there. But at the end of this 40-year period of time, for some reason, he begins to identify with his Hebrew relatives. And he kills an Egyptian man to defend one of his, one of his brothers. And uh, he gets find out, found out and flees for his life because Pharaoh is ready to kill Moses at this point. And where does he go? Goes to the Arabian Peninsula, what is now Saudi Arabia, to the land of Midian, where he finds a well. And there's a, a group of, of women there that are the daughters of a man by the name of Jethro. And he defends these women against some shepherds who are trying to run them off from the well. And so they take him back to their father Jethro, and there he decides to live and serve Jethro. 
Jethro gives him his daughter Zipporah as a wife. He lives there for the next 40 years. And what was Jethro? Jethro was a Midianite priest. He was another pagan. For the next 40 years, Moses would have adopted the Midianite religion. You have to understand that in the old world, the way religion worked was that there were a pantheon of gods. And these gods had power in their land. And typically their power did not stretch beyond their land. So the Egyptian gods had authority in Egypt. The Midianite gods had authority in Midian. And so Moses, it would have made sense for Moses to adopt the Midianite religion. He was no longer in Egypt. For the next 40 years, he lives in the household of Jethro, the priest of Midian. And then we come to Exodus chapter 3, and a remarkable thing takes place. Moses is tending the, fl- the flock of Jethro, and he wanders across this mountain called Horeb. At other places, this mountain is called Sinai. And as he's there, he, finds, he sees something that's rather unique, rather peculiar. He sees a bush that is burning. And as he sees this bush, he begins to notice that the bush is, in fact, not being consumed by the fire. And it piques his interest. It would pique my interest, you know, to see this. And he walks towards the bush, and the bush begins to speak to him. Moses, Moses, it says in his response, here I am. And then the next thing that this bush says to him is, do not come near. Remove your sandals, for the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. God is interrupting the life of Moses at this point. And I'm hoping that he'll interrupt our lives tonight as well. God is going to call Moses to do a remarkable task, something that does not make sense to Moses, to go to Egypt, to a land of foreign gods, where this God, whoever he is, has no authority, and go free my people from the most powerful nation on planet Earth with the most powerful perceived gods in the the universe. And so in order for Moses to be elevated to this task, which he is doubtful for, as we'll see in chapter 4, if you read on, that he uh, actually tries to talk God out of this, God is going to have to teach him the reality of what this God is. Moses has had false religion his entire life, and he has a complete misunderstanding of God. His idea of the gods are warring pantheons that fight amongst themselves, that are immoral. They have uh, sex with one another or with human beings, and they are vindictive, and they are altogether nasty individuals. They are, in fact, created in the image of man. They are just like us. That is what man-made religion is. It is a religion that creates gods that look like us. And my thought is that we as Christians are on the same slippery slope as all the pagans that have ever existed in in the entire world. We run the same risk of having a, 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 a belief structure that says we believe in the triune God of the Bible, but at the same time, we run this slippery slope of making him look like us. And so we'll find language, and this is just examples, we'll find language around us of things like the great grandfather in the sky, or the big guy upstairs, these sort of concepts that make God look more human. When I was a kid, this is a funny little thing about this, but when I was a kid, I had a mental concept for God. I have no idea why this became my mental concept, but it was it. This is how I visualized God. The Mr. Clean guy. I saw him as bald-headed, had a gold earring, white t-shirt, and muscles. And to this day, I honestly struggle with my picture of God when I'm praying. The Mr. Clean guy still comes into my thoughts. We have this temptation to see God as a human being. 
but a really, really strong, really, really powerful human being. He's like Michael Jordan, but he can jump higher. He's like Superman, faster than a uh, speeding bullet, you know, more powerful than a locomotive, able to jump over tall buildings type of thing. Which, by the way, I never understood why it mattered that Superman could jump over tall buildings if he could fly. But anyway, we have this concept of God that says that, uh, that he is he's very much like us. He's only the better version of us that you could possibly imagine. And that's what needed to crash into Moses' life was that, Moses, since this has been your concept of God, I'm going to have to re-educate you. And in the ways in which this has been our concept of God, we need a re-education. So what does God say to Moses? He says, God says, or Moses says, who are you? Who should I say that you are to these, these Israelite people when they ask of me? He gives him a really obscure answer. He says this, gives him three answers. If you look in verses, um, verses 13 and following, I'll read from this point down. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent, you, sent me to you. God said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the first concept. The word holy has sort of two ways of us thinking about it. This is the first way, the otherness of God. When God tells Abraham or when God tells Moses that he is the I am, he is breaking down all of the uh, structures that are in Moses' mind as to what a God is like. A God is, in Moses' mind, created. A God has a beginning and can have an end. A God is not eternal. A God is very much a part of our world. But when God says to Moses, I am the I am, he is saying, I am the one who is. I think a little bit of Ebonics actually helps us understand this a little better. God is the one who bees, okay? Nothing bees except for God, okay? Another way of saying this is that God does not exist. Don't do that little sound bite. That's a bad sound bite. God does not exist he is existence. Do you understand that? You don't need to. You need to accept it. You are fragile. A wisp and you're gone. God is. He never, there was not a time that he did not is. And there will not be a time that he will not is. That's who this God is. He's not like the Egyptian gods. He is not like the Midianite gods. He is totally, totally different. He is, in fact, in a category completely by himself. Another way that we tend to think about gods in our life, a way that we struggle with this, is that we tend to think of God as at the top of a ladder. He is way up there in perfection, and we're down here at the bottom. Maybe at the bottom of the ladder are things like rocks, and then as you climb up are things like vegetation, and as you climb up are things like animals, and then you get to, you get to people, and then you get to angels, and then you get to, to God. It's like a Hindu way of thinking. A lot of us actually subtly have this mentality. 
where it's a great chain of being is what philosophers would call it. But the biblical notion of this is completely opposite. The biblical notion with the I am statement is that there are two types of things in the universe. There is this circle over here, the creator. And then there is this circle over here, the creation. And the circle over here contains everything, angels, demons, rocks, caterpillars, Mike Bundy, uh, Zach Lynch, Danielle Walker. That's what's in this category. So great is the distance between the creator and the creation that the distance between the archangel Michael and God is the same distance as a caterpillar and God. The archangel Michael is no closer to God than a caterpillar is because both of those have the same thing. They are created beings. The uh, archangel Michael is in the presence of God and all of that sort of stuff. And so how then does this other God get over here? That's the problem of this passage to the creation. How can this other God ever actually get to us? Well, um, before we get to that, I want to highlight one other thing before we move on to the next point. And that is to help Moses understand this and to help us understand this, God gives us a visual picture. He's going to do this in two ways. The burning bush itself is a picture of the I amness of God. He is a flame on this bush, but the bush is not consumed. Why? Because the flame does not need the bush to exist. The flame is its own source of energy, it is self generating this energy. It is an eternal flame, so to speak. That is the I amness of God. And so let's move on. This God is also an untouchable God, which is the whole concept of a flame altogether. A flame is dangerous. When Moses first sees this God, he is instructed by God, do not come close. Take off your shoes because the ground on which you are standing is holy ground. The, the college students right now are reading a book along with us. We're, we're doing a Tuesday night Bible study on a book called Yawning at Tigers. And it tells the story of Zanesville, Ohio Zoo whenever, uh, I forget the man's name, in October of 2011, uh, a zookeeper there released 50 animals and then took his own life. And so in Zanesville, Ohio, in October of 2011, there were bears and wolves and lions and tigers and cougars and all of these sort of wild, exotic, dangerous animals roaming around. And so what do the Zanesville residents do? There are instructions on bulletin boards, these sort of things, that traffic stops and this sort of stuff saying, do not get out of your vehicles, uh, go straight to your homes, get into your house, and stay inside. Why? Because there are dangerous animals around. He takes this concept of the Zanesville Zoo incident and says, what if these individuals had in fact, as the, tiger of the, as the, the title of the book goes, actually yawned at the tigers? I'm not worried about them. I'm indifferent about this whole thing. I'm not concerned about dangerous animals. It'd be ridiculous. We'd see that as stupid. We would see it as silly. And yet he says in this book that we essentially do the same thing when it comes to the dangerousness of God, the untouchableness of God. Now, right now, you may have been able to hang with the whole concept of a God who is completely other and I am, but when I begin to talk about a God who is dangerous, who is unsafe, who is untouchable, your temptation in a post-cross age, and we're going to get to that point, is to say, no, that's not my God. My God is not dangerous. My God does not shun me away and those sort of things. But we need to understand this from this perspective first. This God is a fire 
Fires are dangerous. Fires burn us. We are not welcome in the place of fire. The book of Hebrews calls God a consuming fire. And so this God is the type of God that you, in the Old Testament, if you see him face to face, what happens to you? You die. This is the God who, when Nadab and Abihu did something called offering strange fire before him, whatever that is, he sent fire forth from the the tabernacle and devoured them. This is the God that when Korah's rebellion took place, whenever Korah's people desired to go to the Lord in their own way and not go through the priesthood, he opened up the ground and devoured them. This is the God that Isaiah stood before, and when he saw him, he he said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is the God who sent a flood in Genesis chapter 6. He is a dangerous God. He is untouchable. That is what holiness is. It is the untouchableness, the dangerousness of this God. He is completely sinless. And so for sin to be in his presence is an unwelcome thing. That is the reality of this God. And so then how does this God, who is other and untouchable, at the same time be the God who says to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Because that's personal language. This this God, other, untouchable, dangerous, is the same God who says, I want a people for myself. I want nearness to you. How in the world is this going to be accomplished, God? If you are this type of God who is dangerous and unsafe, how can this be accomplished that you ever have a people that you in fact dwell in the midst of? You will devour us. That is the fear of the entire Old Testament. And God relieves that fear here in Exodus chapter 3. I'm reminded at this point, I think that C.S. Lewis captures this for us. When he writes in the Chronicles of Narnia, the the, the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. At this point in the Narnia series, it's just at the beginning, and the Pevensey kids have just gone through the wardrobe. They have found this parallel universe called Narnia. And they begin to discover that there is a witch that is in control, and she has put a perpetual winter across the land. And, uh, but whenever these these animals see that these daughters of Eve and sons of Adam have come into Narnia, they are clued into a prophecy as being fulfilled that Aslan is going to return to Narnia, they say. And so this becomes clear to the Pevensey kids whenever they actually meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. You've seen the movie? Read the books? You should, if you haven't. This quote is not in the movie. They left it out. But it is in the books, and it's probably the most profound thing in the entire series. And it says this. I tell you, Lucy, the the smallest little girl, asks uh, who Aslan is. And then Mr. Beaver responds. He says, I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of beasts, who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Miss Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. 
Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Won't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. And that is the reality of the God of which you serve. Until, and I mean this with every ounce of conviction in my heart, until your God is dangerous, untouchable, and other, and unsafe, you can never rightly understand and appreciate the cross of Christ. You need to see this God as incomprehensible and violent towards sin before you can back away and say, oh, when Christ died, that's what that was all about. Because this God that I'm talking about, this consuming fire, this untouchable God, he so desired nearness to you. This consuming fire consumed himself so that he would not have to consume you. That is what he did. When he presented himself in the burning bush to Moses, he presented himself in this way. This is the other illustration of the burning bush. The bush burned, and because the fire was able to exist on the bush without burning it up, that in and of itself was an assurance that this God could accomplish this goal of being able to obtain for himself a people and not, in the meantime, destroy that people. Your only hope, Christian is that this consuming fire has quenched his flame in the Son of God. That is your only hope. Otherwise, you are destroyed before this God. We need to see him this way. The degree to which God accomplished this is so great. I'll leave you with this thought. After the Son of God was consumed by this consuming fire. He died, and he rose again, and he ascended. Room, praying and fasting together. And there was a sudden wind that swept through. And Acts chapter 2 tells us that from the heavens descended upon each of them tongues of fire. The consuming fire of the burning bush, the one which Moses was commanded, do not come near, now descended to dwell within the believer. This untouchable, holy God this unsafe and dangerous God now dwells inside of you. He has taken up residence inside unholy people. What a bewildering and awesome and incomprehensible and amazing God we serve. And what an tremendous salvation we have. What do we do in response to this? There's tons of things that you could do, that you need to do. 
You're commanded to be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. Ephesians 2. You were chosen before the foundations of the earth that you might be holy and blameless before him. Those things are needed, but this is my desire for you tonight. My desire for you tonight is for you to simply worship. When you come up for communion, consider the reality that has been done with the shed blood and body of Christ. Consider how great a salvation we have and marvel at this God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, I give you thanks for your word, which is rich and full of wonder. We ask for forgiveness where we have thought too lightly of you, where we have made you in our own image, and where we have not reverenced you as we ought. We ask for forgiveness for where the cross of Christ has not been precious to us as it ought to be, where it has been an old story that has been, the significance of it has been lost in our minds. I pray that you would afresh renew this in our hearts and in our minds tonight. I pray that we would worship. I pray that we would bow down. I pray that we would marvel. I pray, Lord, that we would be bewildered by you, the I am, the untouchable, the other, the near. And I pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.